0: Happy Easter. Good to see you. If uh, if you're visiting, I want to say a special welcome. I'm very glad you're here to worship with us. And um, my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, normally this winter and the spring, we uh, have been and will be studying through the book of Romans, the big book in the New Testament. And we're taking a break this morning for Easter just to consider. The resurrection, and it's not something that the Bible commands that we do, but it's just good to do that with the church, with the rest of the brothers and sisters around the world to um, give extra thought to the resurrection. So, we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, the text I'm going to preach from is there in the bulletin. So, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 8. Uh, I, a man, years ago, a man who was a planter... In Mississippi, he would not call himself a farmer. He would identify himself as a planter. Uh, had thousands of acres, family land. He told me about... He, he just would hear these bizarre conversations that would go back and forth between these guys that worked for him, field hands. And, um, but what, he overheard one of the guys say to the other one day, What you're doing is so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. Now, I, I've never heard that saying before. Uh, what you're doing is so loud... I can't hear what you're saying. But, I mean, you get, you get the gist of it, is that this other worker was doing something that was wrong, and that was so loud it was drowning out, whatever the good thing he was saying. Uh, you know, I, that, that resonates. The Bible draws a contrast between living by faith. And, you know, faith is one of the few Bible terms that's defined. It's the assurance of things hoped for, it's the conviction of things, not seen. Uh, living by faith and living by sight. And living by sight is just so much more natural. It just comes to you more, more naturally. Now, here's why I bring that up. Um, the text that we're about to look at, it comes at most 60 hours after Jesus does some of His most, most in-depth teaching with the apostles. You know what we call Maundy Thursday is that night where he gathers in the upper room and he institutes the Lord's supper and and you know, if, if you have one of these uh, red letter bibles, I don't know if you've seen those before or not, but from from that point in John 13 where he washes the disciples' feet, for just the next 4 or 5 chapters is almost solid red. It's he's going to be arrested later that night. He's going to be crucified the next day. He knows that And so he just pours out his heart and his teaching and goes into depth about things he wants them to know. What we're about to read comes at most 60 hours after that. And what you're seeing is what people in this passage are seeing is louder than what Jesus has said. And I'll just say this. I've been a Christian for a little over 30 years now, and that could be a description of my life. And I I know that I'm I'm playing senses against each other to talk about what you see being loud, but just what comes naturally to me, after decades still, is that what I see is louder than what he said. What's encouraging as you look at this text is that you've got people that know Jesus, believe in Jesus, but when they're seeing what they're seeing, it's confusing. And I would strongly suspect, uh, wouldn't be surprised, if you're here this morning and there's something big in your life that, that you're looking at that is confusing. And I don't just mean a little, you know, curveball during the day or this little detail. I mean like something major. Why, why am I going through this? Why is this so hard? Why why am I sick? Why doesn't God fix such and such in our world? And what we're seeing is so loud, it almost drowns out it, maybe it does drown out what he says. So, let's look at this text and let's keep playing let's just keep playing those against each other. What are people seeing? What does Jesus say? All right, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray with the psalmist that You would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from Your Word. For some here, this is um, familiar ground. And maybe this text has been read and thought about many times. For some, it may be brand new. However we come, we pray that you'll open our eyes to behold wonderful things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There's a name that my kids have put on my radar, and um, you may or may not know this person. Apollo Robbins. Ever heard of this guy? Apollo Robbins is a sleight-of-hand artist and has actually become a security consultant. Now, when I say sleight-of-hand artist, don't think like, you know, somebody that can put a bean under a cup and, you know, you never get the right cup. I mean someone who can just lift things off your person and you not know it. Uh, I watched him on a morning show and, uh, you know, he's with the host and the, the anchor or whatever. And he told the host, I'm going to take your watch. So they're bringing him on. He's brought on as a sleight-of-hand guy to do sleight-of-hand, and he told the guy, I'm going to take your watch. So he just kind of steps up to him and just starts talking and kind of moving around and dialoguing with him, and all of a sudden he's holding the watch. You go, how does that... It's on your... It's strapped to your wrist. He told you he was going to do that, but Apollo Robbins will explain. I call him Apollo. Apollo will explain that he, he's tapping into how your brain works. And he, he's harnessing the fact that sometimes when you see something, it just it drowns out what you know is going to happen. It drowns out what you feel on your wrist. It drowns out what you were told was gonna, is going to happen. It's just what you see drowns it out. Uh, he, he's so good that um, he wants uh, the president asked to see him. And, uh, and so he started doing this with uh, secret servicemen. And they got concerned when he was handing them back like their badges, you know, and their handcuffs. They said, okay, I think that's all we want of of that. But that's amazing. I mean, that's a real window into what you're seeing can just, again, I know we're talking about sight, not sound, but it can drown out what you know, what you've been told, what you've heard. And I would would say it again. I I see it in my own life. I, I hear you say it. Um, Christians in this church family, when I talk to you, that like, I I know such and such. I, I believe such and such. It's real to me. But what I'm seeing right now, it's almost like that, that the, the man that worked on the farm, it's like what I'm seeing is so loud, I, I can hardly remember what God said. I can hardly hear what He's saying. And that might be you this morning. And it might be that you're coming saying, I'm not I'm not showing up like as a member of the Atheist Society of America. I'm not here like as the biggest skeptic in the room. I actually believe this stuff. I actually would profess to be a Christian, a Bible believer, but such and such is going on in my life. Or such and such is going on in the life of somebody that I really care about. I'm going, I just can't, I can hardly remember what he said. Now, I don't want to be uncharitable. You know, sometimes we use the apostles and people in the Bible as straw men and they make a mistake, we just go, how did they possibly make that mistake? We would have made all the same mistakes. But what I want to look at in this passage is what I told you on the front end. I want to keep looking at what are they seeing? Because it's confusing them. And then pair that off against what does Jesus say? Now with Peter and John, I want to look at what what had they heard him say and then with Mary Magdalene, I want to look at what did she hear him say right then in her confusion. So let's look at these, uh, these two folks, or three folks. Peter and John first, and then we'll get to Mary Magdalene. Now, in verse 2, you know, John's name isn't mentioned here in the beginning, but it says in verse 2, So she, Mary Magdalene, she, she uh, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, that phrase... The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John identifies himself in the gospel that he wrote. The the gospel of John is not written by John the Baptist. He was killed. It's written by the apostle John. The way he identifies himself is that he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, just briefly, think about who these two guys are. They are two of the twelve apostles. They They are men who have lived with Jesus for something like three years just unprecedented access, Uh, His innermost teaching. They watched Him. They watched Him like a hawk. They ate with Him. They lived with Him. Okay? That's Peter and John. On top of that, of the twelve, there was sort of an inner ring. And this was not a cliquishness. It was just Jesus, in some ways, giving special uh, access, special time to three. And the three were Peter, John, and James. So they're not just two of the twelve, they're two of the three. Kind of inner ring. That's who they are. Now, Mary Magdalene, on this morning, the first day of the week, she runs and finds some of the disciples and said, the body's not there. So they run to the tomb. John outruns Peter. Peter gets there. He goes in. What happens? Now look at how it talks about what they see. Verse 5. Stooping to look in, he... That's John. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And that's very like Peter. Bold. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. And the question is, what does that mean? Because we're, we're in the Gospel of John. The verb believe is huge in John. At the end of this chapter, John chapter 20, John says the reason that I wrote this book, there's all these different stories I could have told you. I could Limitless stories about Jesus. But the reason that I'm telling you these stories is because I want you to believe. And he tells you, that's my agenda. That verb is all through the book. Believe, believe, believe. So John's writing this about himself. That he looks in, and the tomb is empty, and there's the linen cloths, and says he believes. But what does that mean? Does it mean that he believes in the sense of, and finally, all those times that Jesus said to the apostles, the Son of Man going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, and he's going to be killed. And the third day he'll rise again from the dead. And he said that repeatedly. And Peter, James, and John for sure would have heard that over and over and over and over. Does he believe that? Well, we don't know. He knows the body's not there. And we could say he believes Mary Magdalene's report. But then what does the next verse say? Verse 9, talking about John and Peter. As yet, they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. And then the next verse, then the disciples went back to their homes. There's a lot we don't know about what the apostles understood and didn't understand in between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. But it seems to be a mixture of at some level they get it and at some level they don't get it. I mean, Peter and John know that his burial cloths are there. His body's not there. Jesus had told them, not figuratively, but literally, I'll be arrested and then killed, and then I'll rise from the dead. His body's not there. They don't know what it means. And they go home. And, you know, if, in, in your mind, if you're picturing, like, that's a ten-minute walk from the, from the tomb, they're outside of Jerusalem, in the vicinity of Jerusalem. They go to Galilee even go back to fishing. What do they know and what do they not know? In some ways, we don't know. But they're confused by what they've seen. Now, here's the one I want to focus on. Mary Magdalene. Um, We don't know a ton about her. All the gospel writers want you to know that she's there. And I I bring this up every Easter, so I've got to mention it again. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But because the Gospels just, and this is an old problem, just get torpedoed with accusation that these are not historically reliable documents. I just want you to think about a couple of things. If you are crafting a narrative that's not true, if you're crafting a narrative to create an impression about this Jesus guy and to start this, this church thing, would you, would you write the main character's in a way, would you craft their story in a way where they don't get it? If you were John, would you write your story where you don't understand what's happening? And really, more importantly, would you have a woman be the first witness to the resurrection when in your cultural context the testimony of a woman is inadmissible? The best explanation for why the Gospels read that way is that they are accurate. So here's this woman, Mary Magdalene. Don't know a lot about her. It says in Luke chapter 8 that she had been demon-possessed. And Jesus healed her. He cast out the demons. And it says that when she became a follower of Christ, that she was part of a group of several women who supported him and the apostles financially. Now, I'm I'm kind of building a profile of Mary Magdalene. So just think about those two things. And then look at verse 1. It says, Now, on the first day of the week... And I'm throw in one other thing for no extra charge. All four Gospels, when they give you the time marker, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all say it's the first day of the week. They don't say two days after the crucifixion. They don't say on the third day. They say it's on the first day of the week. And steeped as they are in Scripture, it seems to be their way of saying, this is a new creation. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Why had the followers of Jesus been staying away from the tomb? It was the Sabbath. Some of the Gospel writers point that out. So that was off limits. Stay away from the tomb. But as soon as there is even uh, the nearness of dawn, the First person to run to the tomb is who? Is it one of the twelve or eleven at that point? No. Mary Magdalene. And then you get to verse eleven and what does it say? You know, she finds it empty. She goes and gets the disciples. They run back with her. They see that the tomb is empty. They go home. She stays there. And the more I look at her life, I think Mary Magdalene must have been what a friend of mine calls a hundred percenter. Do you know hundred percenters? You know, these, these are the folks that, like, they decide, I'm going to take up running. And their first day, they run 10 miles. Do you know people like that? 100 percenters? Uh, you know, they, they, if, they, if they do a dietary change, they don't, like, dial down. They go, like, straight from, you know, five guys to, like, vegan the next day. Mary Magdalene, you know, before she becomes a follower of Jesus, demon-possessed. Meets Jesus, financial supporter. Uh... First access to the tomb, first one there. Brings people there. It's empty. We don't know what to do. We don't understand. They go home and she stays there. Why does she stay there? And the text, you know, the text doesn't exactly say. It it just seems that she stays there because she loves him. No Da Vinci Code weirdness in that. She loves him as somebody that was saved by him, rescued by him, had heard his teaching, believed in him as Messiah. She doesn't understand. And if I can put it this way, this is the most Jesus-y place she knows to be. So she just stays there and she just weeps. After a while, she looks in the tomb and there's two men sitting there, dressed in white. Now, this is one of those times in the Gospels where we know more. This is often the case. We know more. Than the people actually in the account. We know these are angels. We know how the story turns out. And the angels ask her a question. And on the face of it, I mean, did you notice how seemingly insensitive this question is? What did did the angels ask Mary Magdalene? Woman, why are you weeping? Okay, I can't think of a more inappropriate question to ask a woman at a tomb. I would put that behind, like, are you pregnant? As don't ever, like, that's number one. Number two is, if a woman's crying near a tent, don't, you don't ask, why are you crying? And uh, she very graciously, it leads me to believe that her heart really had been touched by God's grace because she's gracious in her answer. She says, they've, they've taken the body of my Lord away. And that part, my Lord, that speaks volumes. They've taken the body of my Lord away, and I don't know where he is. And then she turns around, there's a man there and this is probably low light still, maybe just dawn, and she thinks that he's a, a groundskeeper. Now, we know something she doesn't know, that it's Jesus. And he asks the same insensitive question, word for word. Woman, why are you weeping? And I want to be careful here, because if there's something I don't want to do, I don't want to do it in my own life, I don't want to do it in front of you. I don't want to read into the passage. But... I have to believe, based on the whole of the Bible, that Jesus must have felt awesome at this point. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, you think about when you're facing something incredibly difficult and incredibly painful, and then you get on the other side of it, how fantastic that is. He, I, I mean, I don't say it flippantly. He just did the hardest thing in the world. He just bore sin and death and the curse, and he finished it. Never has to be separated from the Father again. I have to believe when he's standing there, not that he's a jokester, but that he feels great. And he's looking at Mary and says, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And feel the weight of this, that she says, Sir... If you've moved the body, would you just tell me where the body is and I'll take care of it. And as you hear that, remember, those burial cloths are still in the tomb. So what she's imagining is Jesus' decomposing, unclothed corpse. She doesn't even say, I'll go get help. She just says, I'll just, I think she's 100% I'll move his body. But would you just tell me where his body is? and i'd never thought about this till studying this passage this week that jesus answered her question sir where's his body and again not flippantly but jesus answers it by saying mary it's talking to you and when she sees that that is jesus she, I think every English translation puts an exclamation point on rabboni, and they should. She says, teacher! And what happens next, given the context, is she must have grabbed him. I don't want to use the term death grip on Easter morning, but I would use vice grip, grabs him. She has back the love of her life. Again, I don't mean that in any inappropriate way, the way any believer should love Jesus. She loves Him, and this is like a dream come true. It is a dream come true. Then you get to verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, one of my go-to scholars when I do anything in the Gospel of John is a scholar named D.A. Carson, Donald Carson. And I'm going I'm to quote what he says about verse 17. He, he says, quote, "...this verse belongs to a handful of the most difficult passages in the New Testament." And I thought, great, good. That's just what you want to hear when you're working on a sermon. But here's, here's what he's getting at. Just in the original, literally what Jesus says is, "...don't touch me. I haven't ascended to the Father." And that just doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, it sounds like he's saying there's this unwritten rule. No one touches me in between the resurrection and when I ascend into heaven. So don't touch me. And that doesn't make sense because do you remember the story of doubting Thomas? Jesus appears to the disciples. He sees doubting, doubting Thomas. And he t- this is in between his resurrection and ascending into heaven. And he tells Thomas to do what? Touch me. Touch my hands. Touch my side. D.A. Carson made a great point. He said that the verb that you can translate touch can also mean seize, cling to. This translation, I think, is very good. Don't cling to me. A Southerner would say, grab a hold of. It, it's as if Jesus is saying, again, not being irreverent, but it's as if He's saying, Mary, you, you don't have to vice grip me. I'm not about, if, if you let go, I won't ascend into heaven. But I want you, and listen to this, because this whole passage, the whole Bible, is gold. But this is gold. He says, tell my brothers that I am ascending, like, not the second, but I am ascending to my Father and to your Father to my God and to your God. So I'm not just going into a generic heaven. I'm going to my Father who is your Father. And the name that I always think of when God is that particular, Jesus is that particular after the resurrection, is Peter. Peter was an amazing guy. I don't think any of us would have done any better than Peter at any given moment. But Peter's the guy that said, If everybody denies you, I will never deny you. If it costs you my life, I will never, ever deny you. And he does it three times. even curses at himself to kind of put his exclamation point on the denial. And when that's exposed, when he realizes what he's done, exactly the way Jesus said it would happen, he weeps bitterly. And Jesus is raised from the dead. And what's the message he sends to all the apostles, including Peter? Tell them that they are my brothers. They're my brothers. And I want you to tell Peter that I'm going to ascend to... Jesus is God, and Peter's God. I'm going to go to heaven and appear before my father and Peter's father. I want you to tell my brothers that. What confuses you that you're seeing? I, you know, I, just thinking about my own life, about what is most confusing, there's lots that's confusing in a fallen world. Two biggies that come to mind just as I think about my own life. One is um, my own sin. I mean, I just thought that three decades plus into this, I would have made more headway. I would have changed more. And I just, just failed all the time. And um, people that know me know it. And my family knows it. and uh, But there's some things nobody knows except God, but God knows. And I somewhat know. And you could say the same. That's, that's a biggie. But another one is just how broken the world is. You know, I was saying at the first service, I feel like, I mean, I'm not that old, but I'm older than I used to be. And I feel like in my teens and twenties, I still sort of had the ability to go. Okay, look, I know, it, you know, the world has problems. I know there's a lot of hurting people in the world, but it's Saturday, and could just sort of emotionally, mentally make a break with the problems of the world and sort of give myself over to the, you know, the fun. My next fun thing I was going to do, or uh, you know I, know, I know there's oppression and there's death and there's suffering and sickness in the world, but I'm on vacation, and kind of give myself over to it. And uh, just sort of bit by bit, that's really, really gotten harder. And I think a lot of that is just getting a little bit older, but also seeing how suffering is not this generic thing out there. It starts to have names that you know. And you watch people's faces that you care about, what suffering does to them. And it's just hard to shake it and go, well, I'm going to go on my trip now. Right? Right? And I want you to think about, as we're seeing those things, it may be that what we're seeing that's so loud is just my own badness. Or it could be the thing that we're seeing is something as big as, who knows what, North Korea, or cancer, or human trafficking, whatever it is. But when we see these things, we're just going, it's so loud it can drown out what he says. Now, what he says is that whole book, the Bible. But just think about that one particular message that he says to the apostles through Mary Magdalene. Think about this. To people that he told, You're going to leave me. And you know, we we always kind of throw Peter under the bus. But in the Gospels, it says they all said the same thing. Now, we'll never leave you. They left him. That when Jesus is raised, he says, now you tell my brothers, you tell my brothers that I'm going not just to my father, but to their father when I ascend. I, I heard a church historian say, that Ascension Day used to be as big a deal in the European church as Christmas and Easter. And I'm not saying that, that that's something that we should aspire to, but we don't talk a lot about the Ascension. Do you, do, you know what that, do you know what the Ascension is? It's Jesus taking everything He's done, not just His crucifixion, but His 30-something years of perfect obedience on our behalf, living the lives that we should live, taking His obedience and His unjust death, taking our sin on Him and then paying the price for it, being separated from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then dying. And then being buried. And then rising. Taking all that and going bodily... Not just in some nether region, but physically, bodily, into the presence of his father and ours, saying, Father, and he's not talking to a begrudging deity going, All right, this better be good because I'm tired of them. But standing before the father who sent him for sinners, and the son saying, This is for my brothers and my sisters, this is for your children. Do you realize what good news that is when you look at your life and you go, why don't I change more? Is that because of the work of Christ, God is my Father. And if I blow it this afternoon, if I blow it tomorrow, my tonight and my tomorrow was never my hope for standing before God. The finished work of Jesus went with Him to the Father. And God's not just Jesus' Father. God is my Father. And when you look at the suffering in the world, whatever it is, big or my friend who's going through this hard thing and it makes me sad, why would God do that? I don't see any good reason. Big or small. Can we answer why God is doing that? In fact, I would would caution us against trying to, like, put our heads together and go, I think I know what God is up to in in so-and-so's life. We don't know what God is up to. God is God. That can actually be a way to take His name in vain. But what do we know? As God is doing these things, in my mortality, in my finite mind, I don't know how that could be for any good purpose But here's what I know. He's my God. He's not just a generic deist God. He's Jesus' God. And He's my God. And all this power is harnessed to His goodness and His wisdom and His faithfulness. And that He doesn't change. I don't know why North Korea is so bad. I don't know why Somalia is so bad. I don't know why so many people get cancer. But He's my God. And He's going to work all these things for the good of those who love Him and keep His commandments. And here's the thing. How do we know that? How do we know that Jesus is different than any other religious teacher who makes these grandiose claims the way we know that? is the resurrection. That if the body had never been found, we'd have to wonder, like, I think, I'm 95% sure it's real. I just wish we had come up with that body. But the resurrection, the appearances in front of not just dozens, but hundreds, was sort of Jesus signing the check of all the promises that I have come to fix the world and that it's real. Um, I'm going to end with this. Uh, A student that I got to work with back in campus ministry days, after she graduated from college, um, she was diagnosed with creutzfeldt jakob disease. I may not be saying it correctly, but that's the human um, version of mad cow disease. And that disease usually strikes people in their 60s and 70s. Her neurologist in Atlanta, at Emory, said that when she had it, she was probably the youngest person on the planet to have it. And uh, it took her life. She be- was a believer in Jesus. She was a Christian, as, uh, as are her parents. and. Um, I have a file in my office. I've referenced this before. That, that just the label of the file says, Real Deal. And I made this file because sometimes I get letters or cards from people who are going through incredible suffering. And what God has said is louder than what they're seeing. And they'll write. And I just cannot throw these things away. And I started putting these things in a file and just calling it the Real Deal. Because these are not people writing out of a charmed life. They're in the throes of suffering. And um, but years ago, she sent me an Easter card, and uh, at the end, not broaching any confidence here or anything, she says the cross teaches us so much of suffering and death, and she had gotten a front row seat, looking it square in the face, and somehow coming through with the hope of renewal and life eternal. And on the backside, she writes, We are grateful for a Savior, grateful for Easter, and the hope of heaven. And you understand what she's saying? She's saying, I'm going to see my daughter. And that that's not fiction. And the way that I know it's not fiction is because he rose from the dead. She's already gone to her God and Father. I will go to our God and Father and to the Lord Jesus. Do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as not just a gifted teacher, but as the Savior of sinners? I I want to appeal to you that if you don't know that you belong to Him, that if you have never trusted Him, to take care of your sin, to take care of all the ways that you don't love God and don't love people, that you take Him at His word, that He will fix it. Because it won't just be, oh, He'll he'll give me a clean slate and then I'll see what I can do from there. Now, the good news is that If you trust in Jesus Christ, you'll be able to know that God is not a generic God, but that the Father of Jesus Christ is your Father, that the God of Jesus is your God, and He always will be. That's good news. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you in our frailty and as ones that you know are dust, so uh, sidetracked by what we see, sometimes to the point where we can hardly recall what we'd learned that you said. We pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, deep down in our lives, that the truth that you've said about who we are and what you offer in Jesus Christ, what He has accomplished for His people, that that will become louder than our own sin, louder than our own pain, louder than our own confusion or skepticism, that you would do that in our midst. Father, for the man or woman here this morning who has never trusted you that way, would you give him or her that kind of trust? To believe that you will do what you promise and make yourself his or her God and Father. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.